Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Today's show, I was able to sit down with Jennifer Doliak, who is a professor at Texas A&M. She's the host of a great podcast called Probable Causation. As you can tell from the name, she's really into criminal justice issues, policing issues, and being scrupulous about evidence and, and causation and understanding what we really know. So, you know, we sat down to talk about data on policing, what we know about reforms that work, what we know about recidivism that works, what we know about law enforcement that works. And, and the frustrating fact that in a lot of these areas, like our aspirations to build a better world, they just run ahead of what we really know. So how we can think about finding better evidence. So, you know, you're going to learn a lot here and also, I think, learn a lot about how we can learn even more in the future. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My name is Matthew Iglesias. Uh, I'm here today with a guest, Jennifer Doliak. She is an economics professor at Texas A&M University, also the host of a, of a great podcast called Probable Causation. Um, I, a good friend of mine told me she recommended your podcast to me. She said it's uh, it's like the real world version of what The Weeds pretends to be. So I'm I'm glad to have you on the show, and I'm, <laughs> I'm glad to have friends who, who call me out on... Uh, on my bullshit. Um, <laughs> so welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so you you study a lot of crime and, and criminal justice issues, uh, but also the, the the pun at the heart of the podcast is, you know, something you, you really focus on a lot is like evidence and specifically evidence about causation and, and how we know things. And I mean, I, I saw months ago, you know, after after George Floyd died, when everybody was talking about police reform, you in, in dialogue with with some people who were frustrated, they were, you know, there's, there's a lot of passion in this moment, like people want change, people want to see big problems fixed. And I feel like your job, a lot of the times is sort of like, pump the brakes on people's enthusiasm about certain things and say, talk about talk about the limits of, of our knowledge. And like, what? why is that important? Yeah, I often joke that as an economist, my job is to bring the bad news to any any policy conversation. Uh, so I try very hard, especially in conversations like this to, to emphasize, I'm not necessarily advocating for slowing down any progress or, or trying new things, but I push, I guess, for caution in the sense that we don't actually know what to do <laughs> to fix the, the big social problems we are facing. And if we go into these kinds of situations with a clear idea of what the answer is sure to be, then we are setting ourselves up for failure a lot of the time, because a lot of those solutions that we try to implement aren't going to work. And then we're going to be disappointed. And then some people um, are going to say, well, you know, some researchers said that this would work and clearly we shouldn't listen to them anymore. So um, I try to just be very honest about how little we currently know and, and advocate for rigorous evaluation after the fact, we should go try stuff, but then, but then evaluate it and and be prepared to be proven wrong. Right. So it's about it's it's not about saying, well, we shouldn't change things, but it's it's about having a spirit of humility, right? As we try to 
change things that you don't want to you, you don't want to overpromise to people like okay we're going to do this and it's definitely going to work cuz it really might not exactly yeah i try to tell practitioners and, and policymakers that our goal should be to fail fast rather than not to fail at all because the reality is most things we try aren't going to work like these are these are problems that we're facing because they're so hard to solve if they were easy to solve we would have fixed them already well and that's something that i think people resist in some quarters right i mean there's you know sort of different things that can go wrong in the policy world. And some of it is about, you know, power and volition and, you know, interests clashing with each other. And you just sort of need to like beat the mm -hmm. bad people and put the good people in charge. Uh, but other times you have difficult technical problems. And I mean, I, I, I hear what, what you're saying here is that this is at least in part a, a genuinely hard technical problem in which people of goodwill may try things that sound plausible and it's just not going to work. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I mean, the policing context is a great example where we have, you know, there are a lot of things that seem like they could work um, that we haven't had the chance to try yet because of the people who have been in power. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So when you think about, I mean, unions are, are part of this conversation and there are lots of things that I as a researcher would love to go try different police departments and unions block those kinds of interventions uh, currently. And that could change. And that would be really nice to see change. Right. So, I mean, it is true that there's impediments to reform and then also uncertainty, sure. right? So, I mean, on, on some level, what you need to see is different places try different things right like how 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 do you how do you get evidence on policy change like how 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 would we know if some kind of reform was working so the vision that a lot of non-researchers have in mind is like well we need to go run randomized controlled trials just like lab experiments right and that feels impossible in situations like this and it often is um so yeah so the, the gold standard the dream is to be able to randomly assign some police departments to do one thing and other police departments to do another thing that is going to be impossible in this context so what people like me look for is policy changes that are implemented in a way that gives us some sort of plausible comparison group that that can tell us what might have happened in the treated police department or, or the city absent that policy change. So yeah, so the big upside of, of our very decentralized criminal justice system is that we've got, depending on how you count, 12 to 18,000 different police departments across the country. And if they all respond to the current moment by trying different stuff, then that will give us surely a, a bunch of really nice natural experiments that people like me can use to see what worked best. Oh, there's something, you know, I, I've learned as I've sort of uh, reported more on criminal justice research, you know, over, over the past couple of years is that oftentimes the, um, the, the data is not great, or at least not widely available. That, you know, so, so schooling, right? K-12 schooling is incredibly decentralized in the United States in a, in a similar mm -hmm. way and for similar reasons. But, but the federal government starting in the sixties, um, and increasing really in, in the nineties put a lot of effort into like creating centralized repositories of information so that questions like how mm -hmm. many teachers are there have like very, easy to look up straightforward answers. Um, <laughs> the kids take tests, right, that are like uniform. And, you know, a lot of people find standardized tests annoying for various reasons. Uh, but like we do, there's a there's a utility to having people do something that's standardized because you can then compare. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that came out of the Ferguson protest was media organizations started like tracking incidents of police officers killing civilians. But that had to be done like on a very ad hoc basis. Yeah, it is amazing how little we know about really all quarters of the criminal justice system. Like we do not know how many people in the United States have a criminal record for instance, or where they live, or if they have families or jobs, <laughs> those sorts of things. We don't really know, you know, how police spend their time. We don't know, as you just referred to, we don't know how often police use force, how often police kill people. That sort of stuff is not tracked in any sort of systematic way. The best most centralized version of crime data that we have is collected by the FBI. Uh, they collect, they they have all of the individual police departments report counts of how many 
reported crimes there are of different types. They also collect some information on um, who is a police officer in the jurisdiction. So we know how many officers there are, gender of those officers, things like that. But even then, I mean, there are just so many problems with with that data <laughs> that as a researcher, you have to be like super knowledgeable about to be able to make sense of. And that's the good, that's like the good news is that that data exists. And even, you know, it was the other day, I, I was talking to some people about the sort of apparent rise in uh, murder in at least some cities over the past couple of months. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was like, well, I should look it up. Like, is this a real national trend? Like, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of cities in America. You know, who knows? Um, and so, uh-huh. you know, that was naive of me. It turns out what the FBI can tell you is how many murders there were in the first half of 2019. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's their that's their preliminary data. And, you know, and it's it's weird. I mean, I was I was joking about this, but like the the agriculture department every Monday tells you how many chickens were killed the previous week uh, all across the country. (laughs) They keep that very, you know, how many eggs were laid. Like they are really on top of the poultry situation in the federal government in like amazing detail. The average price of chicken wings Mm -hmm. in grocery stores on a monthly basis. Like they know so much about chicken and like nothing about crime. Yeah, Uh, And it's, (laughs) and I mean, it's, it's funny, but It does seem like on some level, like the first step to show whether you want to be like tough on crime or whether you want to be serious about criminal justice reform or ideally both. It's like having information that's reliable, that's comparable. Like the FBI report also has this like big proviso. They're like, don't use this to compare cities to each other because actually the reporting standards are different. (laughs) which, I mean, I guess is correct, but then it's like, well, what are we doing? Like, what, what is it for if not <laughs> right. to compare What's cities to each other? Um, <laughs> right, right. And so, I mean, I guess this is like a rule of thumb, you know, is that it's better to, if you've got to compare something, try to compare murders, uh, because there's not as much ambiguity yeah. about who is dead. Yeah, it's hard to hide a body. Right. <laughs> We at least we have some sense the reporting is accurate there. Yeah. yeah. So this is just like one thing you could do is try to make it possible to study things. <laughs> yes, that is a good first step. I mean, so so one thing I really enjoy about being an economist in this in this space, studying criminal justice policy, is I, I feel like you have to be really entrepreneurial as a researcher to, if you study crime. And I am that kind of person. And so I kind of I find it fun to go find data that is really hard to find. And basically, basically a big part of this job is like convincing people to give you data, um, right? Finding the police department that will say yes to your request for data on use of force or finding the police department that tracks crime data uh, and, and geocodes it or something <laughs> like that. And I find that challenge to be kind of fun, but it is completely ridiculous <laughs> that that is part of this yeah, job. Yeah, I mean, um, it's a weird word. So, so okay, yeah. so something you've written about uh, lately in a, in a few forums that, that I think is interesting is diversity on police forces, which uh, I, I've been talking mm-hmm. to, you know, activists last month all seemed very sort of um, sour on this, like not against it exactly, but I, I think the impression I got from a lot of them is they feel like this is a like been there, done that, um, it doesn't work kind of thing. Uh, but But you seem to have a more optimistic read on on what diversity can achieve. Yeah. So I guess um, my view based on the research is that, you know, we've, we've been there and done that and it did work in the in the 1970s anyway. Right. So so there were all of these court orders that required police departments to try to hire more black officers and more female officers. And as a result, police departments hired more black officers and more female officers and in general found that reporting by those communities, by women and and by Black residents in those communities went up as a result and uh, related crime went down. So um, I think it's particularly striking when you look at the result of hiring more more women as police officers. You see big reductions in homicides and um, intimate partner violence and big increases in reporting of stuff like domestic violence. And so I think this just all highlights how important trust is mm-hmm. here. And if you have people that you feel like take your problem seriously, you're going to be more likely to report to the police that that something has happened. So we we did this in the 1970s, 1980s, early 90s. Police departments 
now are much more diverse than they were then. So it is not obvious that doing the same thing now would bear the same benefits. But I think it's certainly promising and there's room here for us to continue to move in this direction. So it's something I would like to see emphasized. Oftentimes, the ethnic composition of a police force will be compared to the ethnic composition of the city that they're policing, uh, you know, which seems it's reasonable mm-hmm. enough. But we know that there's actually more crime happening in Black and Latino neighborhoods. And to the extent mm-hmm. that the impacts are on sort of people's victims and community members' level of confidence in, in the department, their eagerness to report, to come forward as, as witnesses, things like that, there's a sort of extra value to having the department reflective, not necessarily of the municipality broadly, but of the communities where the crime victims are and, and where they're they're living. So it, it seems to me that there, there's at least potentially like more margin there than you might think if you ask, like, where is policing happening? Where is crime happening? That these departments, when departments continue to be predominantly white, it's actually quite a large mismatch on a neighborhood level. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is a a place where I haven't seen, you know, really great data on uh, like that neighborhood level. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We'd love to see. But but the numbers that I found were something like like 70% of of full-time sworn officers in the US are white and and only 57% of serious crime victims are white. Right. So there is a big a big mismatch as you said just in terms of like we know that black and latino residents are more likely to be victims and they're the ones that need to trust the police. Right. Because yeah, 70% at the point is 70% white is close to the the national to civilian the population. population, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not right. nearly representative of the population of crime victims. So, and, and even more so with women, obviously, right. where most crime victims, I guess, are men, but not nearly as disproportionately as police officers. So, how do you do that? Like, how how do you get a more diverse department? Yeah, so lots of departments are currently experimenting <laughs> with this. They know it's a problem. The problem is compounded by the fact that in recent years, becoming a police officer is not a particularly appealing prospect. Police have been under a lot of scrutiny recently. So police departments in general are having a really hard time recruiting right now and for the most part cannot fill the available slots. So, you know, if we then say, well, we want to make sure that you're also increasing diversity, you know, if they can't even get enough applicants to fill the available roles, they can't be choosy. So in general, we're kind of looking for for ways to recruit more and different people in general. Uh, but it'd be nice if we could increase diversity at the same time. So it turns out there's a researcher named Elizabeth Linos, who's at UC Berkeley, who has now run a bunch of different randomized experiments in police departments across the country. Her first one, I think, was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where she she just worked with the police department to send out like postcards and like a mass marketing campaign and try different messaging. So the standard way to recruit police is using messages that really focus on public service, right? So that you look at kind of who is currently a police officer. It turns out they are merely motivated by public service. That's why they get into the job. But if we want to think about how to recruit more and different people, we might need to change that message. And she finds that really emphasizing the challenge of the job and the career prospects of the job brought in dramatically more people to apply than if people hadn't received messages at all or received the standard public service message. And in particular, those messages were um, were extremely effective among residents of color. So if we want to increase diversity, it seems like you know, emphasizing those different messages could be really useful. So that's just like one example of a really cheap intervention that seemed to be really effective. And it just, I, you know, there's so much more experimentation to be done around this. You were sort of hinting at this, right? But there's kind of like one of the paradoxes of reform here is it's as as a messaging level, it's it's hard to go to a group of people and say like, uh, the police department's terrible. They're like ignoring crimes in our community. And that's why we need you to go join up. It's very challenging to make anything better unless people are going to want to, like people of with good intentions are going to want to step up and, and participate in, in some level. It's what strikes me as, as hard on a, on a social level. And then part of the reason that diver- like when you achieve diversity, it can help, but, but it may be hard as these things get more into, you know, like hot button partisan politics. 
yeah, it reminds me of conversations around diversity and inclusion, right? You need diversity, but you also need the inclusion piece. Like once people are on the job, they need to feel like they're welcome and they they can do what they're there to do. And in general, like if you recruit like one or two additional black officers in a department, that alone is probably not going to be that helpful. Even if you get them to sign up, they might not last very long, but you really, you're probably also going to need some culture change to make sure that they stay and that maybe you know, they're not just like a token hire. You want you want uh, a whole bunch of new people who are joining the force to because they they want to see a better force. Right. Yeah, it tends to be okay. Let, let's take a break and, and I want to talk about some some more of that. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You wrote a, a column for uh, Niskanen Center, and you were talking about how it's become in so many areas so difficult to sort of discipline officers for misconduct. And and you offered, you know, I, I think an analysis that would come very naturally to economists, but that I think a lot of people don't quite get intuitively. But this is a kind of way when politicians need to bargain with public sector unions, the union leadership and the members, they they want stuff uh, like any union would. And the politicians have, you know, limited budgets that they can work with. And so they often will compensate public employees, including police officers, with things that don't have a fiscal cost. And then it sort of turns out to be costly to, to society on, on the back end, right? Yeah, absolutely. So so you think about the various things that police officers or police unions might want. The pension is a really big, certainly financial cost to, to cities and a big form of the compensation. They get a salary, they get health benefits, but then they also get job security, right? And so in these conversations, that's a really easy ask of whatever jurisdiction they're negotiating with, because that seems free <laughs> to the city council or the mayor or whoever, you know, has to balance their budget. But of course, all the recent conversations we're having suggest that it's not free at all. If it's really difficult to fire a police officer, then it makes it difficult to make sure that the police force that we have protecting and serving us is composed of the types of people who are best suited to that job. So yeah, I mean, as an economist, I look at this and say, well, we get what we pay for. If we want to have more control over who is a police officer and the ability to fire people if they're not doing a good job, we're going to have to pay the people who are officers more in order to compensate them for the loss the loss of that job security. It's a tough conversation because it goes a little bit 
askew to what we're talking about in, in the policy conversation right now, which is that a lot of people who are critical of policing sort of a- as an actual practice say, well, they want to take money out of this and put money into other things. Uh, you know, and that could work on some margins. I mean, you know, there's, there's always trade-offs. There's no unitary right thing to do. But it's quite clear that policing is is important, right? I mean, it's not always done well, and that's a big part of the, the problem. But that becomes the issue here, that if you seriously want to say, okay, well, we are going to hold people to a much higher standard of conduct. We are going to ask them to expose themselves to more personal risk for the sake of not injuring civilians. We are going to get rid of the you know, people get all like hung up about bad apples or or whatever. But, you know, there is a number of people Mm -hmm. who are performing at a much below average level in any kind of organization. And it's very hard to get rid of them from police departments. And that creates, you know, a culture where this is just how some people do things. Uh, But if you want to change that, you are probably going to need, you're going to end up with a more expensive police force rather than a cheaper one. And you'd have to say, well, the benefit is we have a like a like a better community that people feel safe in and they feel good about. Right. So I think the, the conversations around defunding the police certainly imply that we would have fewer police officers, right? So you could you could potentially, you know, cut police budgets and cut the number of officers and pay them all the same amount or pay them more than they're currently getting. I think this also goes back to our conversation about how to recruit people, right? I mean, if we if we want to have more people applying so that we have a lot to choose from and we've got people like on a wait list that we can pull in when we need to fire somebody, then we're going to need to make the job more appealing. And that could be, you know, all a matter of PR. <laughs> but, you know, people respond to incentives and and salaries are a really big incentive when it comes to employment. And so making making the job of being a police officer a really well-paid position, but then expecting a lot of people when they're in that role uh, feels like a really good way to make sure we're, we're recruiting the kinds of people that we would like to see in these jobs. Yeah. And and I guess it could be, uh, I think Lenin said, uh, better, fewer, but better uh, in his his goal to to reform <laughs> the, the Soviet bureaucracy. Um, so you could have like smaller, better paid departments uh, where people are held mm-hmm. to, to a higher standard. That's sort of one conceivable vision. Uh, but I, I worry, at least, that we are moving, at least in the practical city council politics I've seen in, in the couple of cities I watch, toward a sort of like, like a weird kind of leveling down where we're not actually asking a lot more of the police departments. We're just telling them like, we're mad, so we're going to give you right. less money. We're just going to give you less money. Yeah. But expect exactly the same amount of of everything. And there isn't really a clear plan yet to shift a, a bunch of the responsibility to some other outfit, right? Which I think is, again, what reformers are pushing for is to basically have some sort of like force of social workers or something that takes a lot of the calls. But that's going to take a while to set up. Another thing I've heard about recently, so there's a, a the... I think at least in Seattle, surely in other places, the research department, the data people in the police department are on the chopping block. So basically, if these police departments have to are facing huge budget cuts, you know, their their number one priority is is having people having officers out on the street to to deal with crime. And so all that other stuff, the extras like researchers and data and data analysts are going to be the first to go. And certainly as a researcher, I'm in a little little biased here, but I feel like those offices are really important. And and like you said earlier, if we want to uh, figure out what works, then we need to make the data available. And those offices are crucial if we want to be moving forward in that direction. So I think you're exactly right that, you know, there there's the defund the police movement that advocates are pushing for looks very different than what we are likely to see on the ground where city councils are just trying to to appease angry residents. And they're just going to cut the budget and we're likely to see crime go up. We're likely to see it be even harder to, to recruit good officers. That to me seems very unlikely to be the solution. 
I'm very worried about this dynamic. I mean, I, I love to see people be like more engaged in their communities and in politics and pushing for for change. Like it's it's really good. And I I don't want to be like Mr. Naysayer. But when you think about like if you if you take the critique of police departments seriously, right? If you say, okay, these institutions have become they are they are dysfunctional in certain ways. They are too conservative and resistant to change and resistant to scrutiny. They are not paying attention to what marginalized communities need, either on a public safety level or on a on a treatment of civilians level. Well, then take that to heart and then ask, well, what are they going to do with a 15% budget cut? Are they going to, in a really smart, thoughtful way, eliminate, you know, like the most, because no, right? Like it's the exact same people. And if you want change, you have to do something like constructive change. You have to do something calibrated to, to generate it. Like you would need new people to want to be police officers. You would need to be very deliberate about research and evaluation, like things that we know, I think most rank and file officers don't have like near and dear to their heart. Like how can we do evidence-based research on improving our conduct? But like you, you, you're going to have to tell them like, no, we, we are spending money on this because we want to, we want to know. And of course, if crime goes up, you could see the politics flip very quickly. And we've had low crime mostly in in recent years compared to where it was when when I was a kid. And that's opened up a lot of sort of new kinds of political spaces. But I don't think you can just, um, you can just ignore that entirely. Um, And, you know, I, I know not everybody wants to believe this, but at least my read of the the literature is, is pretty clear that officers on the street have an impact on the level of crime in communities. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This is, I mean, there's a lot we don't know in the criminal justice space. Like one thing that we definitely do know is that putting more police on the streets reduces crime. Now there are all of these additional questions about the other impacts of putting more police on the streets, right? What are the social costs? And there is some great research out there that is trying to to quantify that and, you know, measure the causal impact of policing on things like, you know, the educational outcomes of kids if you put police in schools and the, the, the long-term trauma to, to kids if there's a police shooting in their neighborhood and those kinds of things. But when you just look at crime rates, it is extremely clear that police reduce crime. And as we were discussing earlier, crime is more likely to happen in low income and and minority neighborhoods. And so the results, the costs of reducing policing, which is, is currently concentrated in those neighborhoods because that's where crime is, if crime goes up, those are the people that are going to bear that cost. And there might be benefits, right? I mean, do, you know, people worry about over-policing and there could be benefits from reducing over-policing. But there's going to be a trade-off here. It's not going to be a clear benefit. Right. And, you know, when I was in, uh, took, took my, I took only one economics class. But, you know, you, you draw these, these trade-off curves, right? And, and I think the thing people need to know about this is that the, the trade-offs are essentially, they're like internal to the same communities, right? Like the people who suffer from overly aggressive policing are also the same communities that suffer from excessive violence crime. And you can pick different spots on that trade-off curve. But like really to help the the kinds of communities we're talking about, like you need to you need to push the curve out or down or I forget how do these curves work? You're you're the professor. (laughs) You you do something with the curve, right? Um <laughs> the production possibility frontier. You could shift it out. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I think the dream scenario here is just to have like better policing, right? So it'd be better if we had police that you know could could reduce crime and also not beat people up who don't deserve it, right? And like <laughs> you know, reducing the number of unnecessary uh, killings by police, just in general, like you know, they're we know that there are tons of incidents out there where, that unnecessarily escalate even to an arrest, much less to violence. And it would be better if we had officers 
and trained officers in a way that that taught them how to de-escalate situations and achieve, you know, less crime and better outcomes for everybody uh, without arresting as many people or or um, resorting to violence. And so that's the that's the dream. And the question is how to get there. Yeah. So do we have evidence on training programs that are that are good and that work? Uh, because you know, there's like a million like racial bias trainings and slightly superficial things that, I mean, businesses do them, (laughs) police departments do them. And I think, you know, sophisticated people at least, you know, roll their eyes at at some of this. Uh, But also, like, obviously, you can do trainings that are effective. Like, I've learned things that help me do my job better. Uh, I'm, I'm sure police officers could do that, too. Yeah. So we know remarkably little about which training programs work. You know, implicit bias training is really hot right now, both in policing and everywhere else. And uh, in general, we have no idea if implicit bias training works. The psychologists I know don't think it has any impact at all. (laughs) So, um, you know, but someone should go test it. So there's there have now been two nice studies of a procedural justice training program, uh, one in Seattle, one in Chicago. Chicago was a much bigger one, so it provided really nice evidence that that this kind of thing can be effective. And the program that they implemented there was just a one-day training, but they, they, they trained all the officers. And the procedural justice component of it is basically like training the officers to make sure that they talk to the people who are around and make them feel heard and and just in general make them trust the process and make sure that they they trust that the officer understood their perspective and, and listened to them and, and all of that so that they then trust whatever whatever the outcome is. They kind of they they because they trust the process, they'll trust the outcome essentially is the idea. So what what kind of results did that get? Yeah, I got uh so the Chicago program they wound up reducing use of force. They reduced complaints against the officers that have received the training, reduced settlements and lawsuits, so big financial payoffs to the city. I think it was like a 6% reduction in use of force, but it was, you know, statistically significant. And this is a one-day training. <laughs> so, like, if you'd asked me ahead of time, I would have guessed that this would have no impact on anything. But they found, you know, pretty sizable effects relative to you know, other things that we might do. And you could imagine the same kind of training having, you know, even bigger effects if you made it an annual thing or even just did it in combination with other stuff, right? I mean, I think no one, no one intervention is going to be the solution to all our problems. But, but I mean, that definitely sounds like something, I mean, given how sort of superficial it was, that that sounds like something like any department should seriously consider just doing. Um, And probably some departments, it would be, I mean, since we're talking about evidence, it would be good to see another large department explore a more robust version of this training. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So they they did it the way they did it in Chicago was really nice. They basically, you know, they had to train 8,000 officers. They couldn't do it overnight. So they basically randomly chose 25 to 30 at a time to get the training each month. And so that meant that you had this nice staggered rollout of the program over time and it was random when you got the training so they could they could compare people who got the training early to those who got it later. And that's just a really nice model for testing any kind of training, right? So I think it, you know, it's nice to have evidence that this particular training worked in Chicago, but it also is really nice to have a model that other departments can just directly apply to test anything that they want to try. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot. Now, do they know were they able to follow up and see does that fade out? Or, you know, is it just like one and done? Yeah. So they, they followed people for two years, I think. And I think the, tr- the the effects got bigger over time, which suggested that there might be some spillover effects. So basically, you know, the people who got it early were essentially essentially treating their peers in a sense. So they would like go back to their unit or whatever and and um, maybe share what they knew or just having them around would, you know, have have beneficial effects um, in whatever, whatever situations they were in. So it doesn't seem like the effects faded, which is also really impressive. Yeah, no, that's good. Or, or maybe even like a positive reinforcement, like the officers, you know, enjoy it, enjoy getting a better response from the public. I yeah, mean, presumably, I mean, I like being better at my job when, you know, like I presumably everyone likes being better at whatever it is they're doing. Um, and so I, you know, having a training like this that where you see 
I mean, the effects were big enough that they probably saw directly the uh, difference in, in how civilians interacted with them. And, and that has got to make the job of being a police officer more enjoyable. I mean, you would hope. The most frequent thing that I have heard from police officers is like their frustration with not getting the level of respect or or what have you from the community mm-hmm. that they feel they deserve. And yet they often seem very resistant to the idea that like maybe they should try doing something different. It's <laughs> um, like that's the upshot yeah. of this training, right? Like, it's, I, I don't know, it's a one day training. But they obviously told them something, like, try doing it this way. And people were a lot happier (laughs) with that. Right. So, you know, I mean, it's, I don't know, you know, politics is what it is. Uh, But this just always strikes me as a terrain that is less zero-sum, like, conceptually, than a lot of other issues that we deal with. Like, people don't want to see their neighbors and family members killed. And police officers, I think... (laughs) like want to be liked and seen as helpful and you know we're 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 obviously like not there in so many cities in America um okay let, let's take another break and then i want to i want to talk about recidivism support for the weeds comes from hydro finding the time to exercise can be hard but with the hydro rower finding time for a 20 minute full body workout can be a piece of cake Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So another uh, line of research that I've seen you involved with is programs that try to help re-entering prisoners uh, or not prisoners anymore, uh, p- people coming back into civilian life. Because uh, we know a huge problem, right, is that a, a lot of people go to prison, they do their time, they're released, and then they wind up back in prison. And this is like, nobody wants, like, lots of crime, lots of people in prison. Like, it's a huge problem in American society. Uh, but we don't really seem to know, like, what to do do in a lot of these circumstances. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the best data in the U.S. suggests that um, two thirds of those released from prison will be rearrested within three years, which is a lot. And I think about half of those are actually reincarcerated. And so, yeah, if we if we are serious about wanting to reduce incarceration rates in the U.S., which a lot of people really want to do, then we need to figure out a way to stop people from cycling through the system. And that, it turns out, is really hard. And again, is a, is a place where a lot of the things that we try don't work. 
And so it's another place I've really been pushing for just just trying stuff, but also evaluating to make sure we're getting the, the benefits that we're hoping for. What is not working? What, what do people need to know to, to knock off? So what got me into this initially uh, was I wrote a paper on ban the box policies, um, which prohibit employers from asking if you have a criminal record on a job application until uh, they can ask late in the process. They can do a background check before actually hiring you. But but basically the idea, the hope is that this gives people with a record a chance to get in the door and build rapport with the employer so that they won't care if you have a record um, when they finally check. And as an economist, I heard about this and thought like, oh gosh, this could backfire if employers don't want to hire someone with a criminal record and they can't ask, they might just try to guess and then they don't interview young black men, for instance. And so found in my work that that is what happens. And so Ban the Box does seem to have this unintended consequence. Subsequent work also finds that in most cases, it doesn't seem to increase employment for people with criminal records either, which is unfortunate and certainly unexpected. So this really led me to think, you know, in policy conversations, because because I'm so used to bringing the bad news, I always try to bring at least some alternatives, right? Like, you know, don't do this anymore, but we should do this instead. And so I started reading the literature and just realizing like, gosh, we know nothing about like what to do instead. Another thing that really doesn't seem to work is transitional jobs. So it seems like one other policy you could try is just like, if we, if we think employment really matters, we could just try giving people a job right? Um, and that could help them um, build both the, you know, maybe some some job-specific skills, but more likely the, the kind of soft skills like being reliable, showing up on time every day, um, getting along with your manager, like all that kind of stuff. So these kinds of programs have been now tested as nice, rigorous, randomized controlled trials in a number of dis- different settings. And in general, they give people a job at like a nonprofit for six months and the the nonprofit really works with them to make sure that, you know, to help them become a better employee. And then the goal is to transition them into a more permanent job. And in general, those programs all find that if you're randomized into the treatment group, you get offered this job, you show up, like you, you actually do it. But then at the end of the six months, you don't look any different than the control group. So long-term employment isn't affected at all. And in most cases, recidivism doesn't go down even when the people are are in those transitional jobs. So it really seems like just giving people a job doesn't work, which was certainly surprising to me. So to to, to step back, right, the the context for this Mm -hmm. is that we have a sort of like collective action problem with regard to the employment of ex-offenders, right? Which is like, from a social point of view, we don't want to say anyone who's ever been to jail, ever been to prison, is now permanently unemployable. I, I mean, there's there's more to crime than labor market prospects. But clearly, if, if mm-hmm. nobody can get a legit job, then the prospects of them committing more crimes are, are really, really high. Uh, but at the same time, as an employer, like, it's very understandable that given the option between two different people, one of whom uh, was just out of prison and one of whom wasn't, that you're going to want to stay away from the, the the criminal, right? So we're seeking ways, right? So so the idea of being in the box is, well, okay, if we obscure it, then we're going to make this trade-off go away. Uh, but instead, employers just discriminate against Black men in general. So, okay, well, we could do a transitional job and that'll give them the skills. But it's still the same population and people still know, right? It doesn't, you, you, you can't like trick people into not realizing what, <laughs> what, what you're dealing with here. Yeah. So one thing I, I wonder, because, you know, I, I read about a lot of stuff is how much of this is just a sort of a, a, a macro issue that, you know, as long as employers can be choosy, they will discriminate against ex-offenders. And if you try to stop them, they'll statistically discriminate. But if you have a really low unemployment rate, then it doesn't matter. And like, just everyone's going to get hired regardless. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So having a low unemployment rate certainly helps. Um, Basically, any group that's on the margin of the labor force is going to be better off if employers can be less choosy, right? If you get two applications for every job or just one, then you're going to have to hire that person. Uh, If you get 100, then you're going to pick the person that that feels like the best bet to you. And um, yeah, there are a bunch of groups who are going to be on the margin, including people with criminal records. But I think, you know, what you, what you're getting at is is really what I see as the, the big issue here is trying to figure out like what 
what employers are really worried about here and what what their incentives are, and then trying to directly ad- address those incentives. So yeah, I mean, if, if we want, if we think that there are um, positive externalities <laughs> in econ terms uh, from employers hiring people with criminal records, that means that you know all of us benefit somewhat when employers are willing to give people with the records a chance, then there's good reason for government intervention to try to provide incentives to employers to do more of that. And then the question is, is just like, what is it that employers are worried about? What incentives do we need to provide? And the transitional jobs, I think we're really betting on the issue being that this this group on average doesn't have the soft skills, doesn't have the interpersonal skills, and really, you know, having a place that they'd worked for six months where their supervisor could vouch for them, like maybe that would be good enough to get them into the, the private sector job. And it seems like the answer is no, that wasn't enough. So there's something else that employers are worried about. So do do we know like what, <laughs> what are employers worried? I mean, I can just yep. imagine... Uh, a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I don't know um, that, that that you might that you might worry about. Yep. So something that employers talk a lot about is they're worried about legal liability. So if someone um, who has a criminal record then commits another crime on the job, then even if before they were hired, that particular record didn't look like much of a red flag, like it was a minor drug conviction or something. In retrospect, anything can look like a red flag to the press or to a jury or or whoever. And so that that's a you know a potentially catastrophic cost to the employer. They could could put them out of business if um if they have a big enough lawsuit, negligent hiring lawsuit, or if they get the bad press from from hiring someone who went on to you know assault a customer or something. So in that case, you can imagine interventions that shift the risk from the employer to the courts or to some nonprofit or something like that. So there's a legal liability issue. And then there are all these issues around productivity and like maybe just on average, people with criminal records we know are more likely to have um, histories of substance abuse and untreated mental illness. And they're also, because we have high recidivism rates, more likely to be arrested soon. And so, you know, they might be less reliable. And that is something employers have an incentive to worry about. And so we could also do more to address all of those things, like actually make them more work ready by actually investing in this population rather than just locking them up for years. And that could address those employers' concerns. Right. So that's to say, uh, typically people who who wind up incarcerated have, um, they have problems, right? This is a, a, a group of people that has low level of formal education, high rates of substance abuse, high rates of mental illness, and you put them in prison conditions that are often quite brutal for a span of time, and then set them loose upon the world and... You ha- and then we blame the employer for not wanting to hire them. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Just right. Like, Whereas, okay, and, and we're <laughs> yeah. spending a, quite a lot of money um, on, on the prison system. And mm-hmm. so maybe we need to, like, do do something. I mean, I also just wonder, like, as a society, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I I have an article up on my uh, from the New York Daily News. It says, exclusive city bus drivers with criminal past slip through gaping loopholes. And of course, I get it. Like, I'm a dad, right? So it's like, do you want criminals driving the bus with your kids on it? But I mean, again, assuming that we don't want this is the problem, everybody yeah. to be serving a life sentence, Right. Which like we right. don't like even even under conditions of our sky high incarceration rate, like most people get out of prison. Uh, a lot of people have the aspiration to have those sentences be be shorter. Uh, the unfortunate reality, right, if we've read John Pfaff and, and others, is that it's not just like all marijuana dealers in there. They have done bad things, yet we want them to leave prison and we want them to like do something normal with their lives. And most people most people do age out of crime quickly, right? So people do, especially young men do a lot of stupid things. <laughs> and and by the time they hit 25 or 30 or 35, like they've grown out of it. And so, yeah, I mean if if then their criminal record means they can never get a job, that's just that's a that's a heck of a punishment to put on someone who, you know, made mistakes when they were younger. Right, cuz you know, driving a bus, like that's a pretty good that's like something you can teach people to do. It's skills you can learn later in life. It doesn't require like many years of college. Uh, but but you have to be willing to say on some level, like, yes, like ex-criminals are going to be interacting with citizens and some share of them won't be 
solid citizens for the rest of their lives. Uh, and, and we have to like, right. we have to bite those bullets. But so do we know what, what, what works? What's the most, what, what, what's optimistic here? <laughs> Let's get some good news. Yeah. So um, so one of the most promising types of interventions that has been shown to work in a bunch of different contexts is cognitive behavioral therapy. So it's basically a form of, of therapy that teaches you to just change the way that you you think about any scenario that's in front of you to like slow down, you know, question your initial reactions. There's the the example that that people give of this kind of program is like the initial interaction is like they they have people pair up and they give one of them a like a tennis ball or something and they say okay the other person you should get get the ball from your partner and they like spend a minute beating the beating each other up trying to get the ball from them and then they switch and do it again and then after that that interaction the the facilitator says you know did anyone try just asking for the ball you know like what <laughs> what did you think was going to happen like uh, and it turns out everyone's like yeah i don't care about this ball i would have given it to you so just like things like that to train train us all to question the scripts that are in our minds about how things are going to go based on our past experiences so those have been those times of programs have been shown to reduce violent crime to reduce you know all kinds of in- increase um, uh, persistence in school a whole bunch of you know, good things. So that is is one area where it just seems like, uh, you know, there should be really high quality CBT everywhere. <laughs> and of course, scaling up is a whole nother issue. But like, uh, abstracting from that, that seems like a really promising program. I mean, if people don't know, right, I mean, the the sort of premise of of CBT, or at least one of the premises, is that a lot of times people, and I mean, this is like, not just criminals, it's, it's many of us, uh, do things that other people don't want us to do, but that also lead to outcomes that we ourselves don't want. And it's that we, we want to, I, 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 I did a, a CBT earlier in, in my life that, that I found very helpful. And it's because you get into patterns of dysfunctional behavior where things happen, you react to those things, other people react to your reaction. Next thing you know, everybody is really upset and worse off than they were before. And you can learn to think differently, right, about these sort of predictable patterns of, of bad behavior. Uh, but it requires, I mean, I mean, it requires investment in the program, but also extension of a certain amount of goodwill toward, you know, people who get in trouble, right? That like, you have to, you have to be willing to believe that like, they, they, they want to do better. And and you, you need to help them. Yes, there's both the providing the opportunities for these programs um, is kind of the first step. The second step is like convincing people to go and participate, which isn't always easy, right? A lot of these programs where they've been successful have happened while people are incarcerated or while they're like required to be in school or something. And it's actually not that obvious how to get people who would really benefit from this kind of training to show up and participate in it. And then there's the question, you know, if if there are these legal liability issues hanging over employers, if they're genuinely concerned about that, then, you know, all the CBT in the world might not get them to take a chance on someone with a record. So they're, they're kind of layers of this that um, I think are going to be really important to understand that we don't understand yet. Before I close out, I, I always like to ask people, like, what, what, what did I miss here? What, what should I have asked you about in these, in these broad subjects? What do the people need to know? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I think there's a ton of research out there. And, you know, I spend my career reading through all these papers and trying to glean what I can from the research that exists. But the reality is in just in all of these corners of the criminal justice system, there is so much we don't know yet. And the best that anyone could could do, both as like as a as a voter, as a concerned citizen, as a practitioner, a policymaker, is just to facilitate a culture of experimentation where we are striving to fail fast rather than not to fail at all. And I think, you know, some some leaders, some, you know, mayors or uh, Department of Corrections officials or whomever ha- are really good at building their careers in a way where they thrive on that and, and lead, you know, as people who want to find solutions, not necessarily who are going to come in and, and provide the answers. And I think the problem is that as voters, we don't always reward that. And so if we want to see meaningful change, I think we need to be more open to having our leaders say, you know, I don't have all the answers, but I'm determined to find the solution. And, you know, 
let's just go try a bunch of stuff and figure out what what doesn't work. And, uh, you know, we, we don't like hearing that, but that's honest. <laughs> like that's the way it's going to have to work if we're going to find solutions. That makes a lot of sense. I think sense. that's the, the main takeaway I hope to lead people with. Yeah. Demand, demand evidence, but be patient with people. Okay. So that's fantastic. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, anybody out there, uh, probable causation, excellent podcast. Uh, Jennifer is also a great, uh, Twitter follow. If you are interested in these subjects, uh, evidence, uh, all, all kinds of things related to, to criminal justice. Thanks as always to our sponsors, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld, and the weeds will be back on Tuesday. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on Home mom? <laughs> no. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.